Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Across the Western world, the carbonated soft drinks category is experiencing real transformation, thanks to the sugar backlash, the resulting sugar tax, and the fight against plastic. I recently heard that the majority of fizzy soft drinks sold in the supermarkets now contain no or low amounts of added sugar. It goes without saying that it has been a difficult few years for some of the biggest global brands. But the other side of that coin is that there are plenty of exciting emerging brands taking advantage of the move towards healthier and natural and creating new category subsegments and the start of some transformational growth. Think real fruit sodas, no added sugar seltzers, and the even more niche kombuchas or kefir waters or even sparkling coconut drinks. If you live in the UK, you probably recognise the very cool British soft drinks brand, Dalston Soda, whose mission is to put real ingredients back at the heart of soft drinks. I think their range of highly distinctive, brightly coloured metallic cans with the big standout D for Dalston's on the front is a future brand icon, just the right mix of cool yet accessible to the mass market. Together with the great drinks inside that are made with real fruit, low sugar, local ingredients and even distilled botanicals for serious amounts of flavour, Dalston's is one to watch. I spoke to Dan Broughton, CEO and co-founder, to find out how he and his team are setting up the brand for success. Dan Broughton, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Fiona. It's great to be here. So listen, for those of our listeners who are tuning in from across the pond or another part of Europe and haven't come across Dalton Soda, tell us about the brand. Tell us what it looks like, where we can find it, and then tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and the kind of things that you've done that have got you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with Dalton Soda Co., um, we are found in cans. They're very colourful and you'll have a big D on the front there. The D is a hand that shows some of the process of what we go through to make the product. They are gorgeous, gorgeous cans, by the way. I love your packaging. It's really standout. Really, really oh, thank love you. it. Yeah, we just uh, won the DBA award, uh, which we can't take credit for because obviously it's our design agency, B&B Studios, who've done a fantastic job. They have. And they really do pop off the shelf. And it took us a couple of years to get to where we are now, but it's, it's really in a in a good place mm-hmm. and I think it's kind of got that um, immediate kind of get what it is on the tin and that's I think so important because the consumers are just looking for 20 seconds and need to get what it is so, sure. um, so we're about um, sort of a, a real tasty natural soda and seltzer brand and what we want to, to do is be the sort of tastiest and healthiest fizzy soft drink option um, in the UK predominantly and then we're looking further afield um, you can find us right the way across the supermarkets in Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ricardo or Asda. And then we're in um, thousands of lots of sort of food service places like coffee shops and sandwich shops, sushi bars. Um, we're in lots of pubs and restaurants as well. So um, the brand's really starting to get out there. Yeah. Um, How big is the business now, Dan? Um, well, last year we got to about two million turnover, mm. and um, at a retail sales is about three million. Wow! So it really started to kick off in in two, 2018 when we went through our rebrand. So we were Dawson Cola Co, and everything was handmade and glass bottles. Yeah. We went through the transition into Dawson Soda Co, um, outsourced our manufacturing, and we went through this rebrand. And since that launch in April is when we've really sort of ignited the the, the business, and and that's where the growth has been exponential. 
moving into cans must make the product so much more accessible for, I suppose, moving into that top part of the mass market, right? Yeah, I mean, when we looked at this, I um, have to excuse the pun, I've probably said it a thousand one times, but it was a bit of a bottleneck for glass bottles. Right. What you found over the last 20 years as adult soft drinks has emerged is everybody and anybody that was coming into that premium sector went into glass because they knew that they could charge a premium because everyone thought, oh, glass bottle, it's posh, mm-hmm. I can sell more. And what you found over that time is that it's it's basically sugar and juice and water sold for quite a lot of money in a glass bottle. And I think that area has just been absolutely kind of saturated. Um, but what we saw as, a, as sort of an opportunity was in this can world. If you go down the aisles of the cans, 95% of all of the liquids, take the brands out to the equation, all the liquids is not very healthy. Um, okay. It's got a lot of artificial ingredients, got a lot of sugar. Um, and so we've just found that you couldn't find the liquid that consumers want in a can format. And the other thing to cans is that for me personally, I mean, you always ask this about people about drink Coke. What, what's the best format you drink? And people just love drinking um, a fizzy drink out yeah. of a can. It makes it extra cold. It has that kind of pop when you open yeah. it. It's very nostalgic. And yeah. there's something really just kind of cool about the can. And then the final one for me was that the craft beer um, guys have, really kind of revolutionized the can it was always thought of as cheap and kind of you get the lower priced price mark pack products in there but craft beer guys came in and just filled it with wonderful liquid amazing branding and all of a sudden everybody goes wow actually you know i love the can again so it was a bit of a revival of the can that's a really good point you make there and i think it's one worth underlining because a friend of mine back home in Ireland is uh, really high up in Ipsos MRBI and he always said to me, you know, never forget that consumers and shoppers make a choice, a decision in a frame. They don't make a decision independently of other things that they're considering. And actually before uh, Craft Beer went into cans and made cans cool again, maybe that move for you into cans wouldn't have had that positive perception associated with it. But because something else shifted in an adjacent category for your potential shopper, all of a sudden there was an opportunity open. It's really interesting, isn't it? The way the dynamics in different categories, as long as those categories are bought into by your shopper, then, you know, you can you can really benefit from shifts across categories, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think packaging is so important. And it was a classic of um, Innocent when they moved into the, the clear, I think it was like a carafe, and the sales rocketed because yeah. you could see the product. Yeah. And I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was actually the Minute Maid product that had been around since God was a boy. But all of a sudden, it was all a vogue to see the product inside. Yeah, and no, absolutely. There's there's different trends within packaging, and we're certainly seeing that within sustainability now. So the, that 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 kind of doubles up within cans. It's fully recyclable, and it's just got a fantastic kind of uh, sustainability kind of circular, circular loop properties. Sure. Um, so it's all kind of come around at the, at the same time, but I'm sure in 10 years, there'll be a different um, pack format that's going to be very popular and we'll have to see what happens there. So you joined the company how many years ago now? It's been four years ago now. It's been four years. And before that, tell everybody what you were doing in the lead up to joining the company, because I know that when you did join, you were part of a big pivot then, weren't you? A strategic pivot in terms of what you were bringing to market and how you were bringing it to market. But really, that probably came from an awful lot of experience that you had throughout your career, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm coming up to about 20 years in the industry. And I was lucky enough to start off my career in a brand called Pete and Johnny's, Mm -hmm. uh, which um, a lot of people who are maybe younger than 30 won't know. Um, But it was actually the brand that created the smoothie market. So there's a guy called Harry Crago, 
who brought it over from California, frozen and defrosted it, had three days shelf life. And I was the, um, um, a sales guy driving around a van with a big bottle on top, which wasn't very cool for my street cred, so I had to buy my own car. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we were responsible for putting the smoothies on the map mm-hmm. and that, that brand got sold to PepsiCo. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I was looking at some some brands that were really on the up and I approached green and black chocolate and I was really lucky to get into what, what at the time was like a, just the best chocolate it on was. the planet. It, um, and it still is. I just had some, I just had some right now. You see that piece of foil? Oh, that's my, Ooh, that's part of my, um, the milk. I mean, their milk chocolate yeah, is just to die for. It's to die for. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, interesting. That's like 34% cocoa, which yeah. is higher than Bourneville dark chocolate. So it's a really like darker shade of milk. It's amazing. Mm. And that brand was um, sub, it was about 8 million turnover when I joined and we took it up to 30 million as a team of about eight of us in the commercial team. Um, fantastic marketing and operations, but um, it was part of the, um, the acquisition for Cadbury's and mm-hmm. Cadbury bought it and I helped to kind of integrate that in and then actually went in and it was pitched to me as at the time, do your time in the big corporate. So I jumped into Cadbury and um, I thought it was the best business ever. I mean, I think Cadbury's probably top three companies you'd want to work for in FMCG. Really? And I, I just absolutely loved it. It was, um, again, excuse the pun, it was the purple patch. It was high growth, great marketing and really, really good people in the business. Okay. So I learned a lot about category management, about kind of P&Ls and um, all that good stuff. So it was a fa- fantastic rounding that I did a, a decade in what I would say small, medium, and large businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, then I got headhunted by the Green and Black guys who had bought into a brand called um, Coulson Vale. And I was part of the, the, the t- direct team there on the board to uh, rebrand to Coulson Press and to launch a next generation soft drink business from this historical old apple juice brand that had been around since 1986. Um, and took sales there from sub 1 million to 10 million in four years. We launched into 14 countries around the world, wow. had a phenomenal team of 16 people. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a great roller coaster ride. And I think that was my first taste of this kind of real entrepreneurial world as a director. Um, and then in the lot, yeah, the sort of four years ago, I got headhunted to, to come in alongside the founder of, of Dalston Cola at the time to, um, come in and help scale this business that was, being handmade in a converted archway in East London. Um, and the turnover was about 180K. Um, so I said I've done small, medium, large before, and this is just like tiny startup. Sure. Um, so definitely been the, the, the kind of biggest challenge, but also the most rewarding. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we have this debate on the show so often, you know, can you start a food business and, and scale it if you haven't had the experience, the kind of experience that you have or some of the other guests that we've had in the show have had? And, you know, the jury's out. Some people have done an amazing job of setting up and scaling their businesses without any of that. And, and it's actually a credit to them or it's worked in their favour because they haven't had any of the preconceptions or the, the limits that sometimes uh, having experience gives you. But Yet again, we have someone on the show who is scaling a business, but has a tremendous wealth of experience behind them in the industry that they are now working in. And I imagine that you've had so many learnings in terms of how to drive sales in, you know, on a store by store basis or how to deal with wholesalers or, you know, how to make sure that cans are not going to get dented in transport or whatever, you know, messaging on cans and uh, stand out and shelf. There's so many things that are just part of your kind of natural reflexes now that you would have had to learn had you been started from scratch, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's just so much that you glean over the years. And it only becomes apparent when you help out other people and yeah. do talks like this. Yeah. You start to realize, oh, well, actually, I've picked up quite a lot. But yeah. yeah, it's, I use the analogy of if you're skiing, you go down a mountain and you just don't know what you're doing. A lot of people get, could go up there, maybe they'll get down, but they mm-hmm. won't be in one piece. And I think if you can have experience and navigate this path, it does help you avoid certain pitfalls. I think it, it helps you set up your your boat to go into the area which is like calm and sunny as opposed to an area which is like stormy and yeah. just big, huge waves knocking you. And that's what I've found is that once you've lived and breathed the industry, you can see opportunities that other people can't see. Intuitively, you'll get, as you say, a certain message on a pack that will switch on consumers. You'll understand the pricing dynamics and where the price needs to be. You, you understand the competition and how you're going to innovate to offer a genuine USP, which is then going to drive incremental sales. Um, you know how to talk to manufacturers. You know how to talk to buyers. Um, you know how to motivate a team. So there's so many elements. And I think a lot, we look at the outlier brands, that are like the unicorn brands that have done extremely well. And I don't think that's healthy for everyone because it's not the norm. The vast majority of brands are iterating and failing and experimenting um, before they get to that, if they ever do get Mm -hmm. to a a minimal viable product. And I think the ones, the founders that have got, I'd say they've got the time right, they've got got some luck on their side, but they've executed brilliantly. They do tend to bring great people around them because they want to hire their weakness. And I think that's, that's the key to this is many fathers to success. It's not just about one person. It's about a collective. It's about mm-hmm. a team and, and the spirit and the culture. I think once you've got your products and your brand, it does come down to that, that team and that dynamic that helps accelerate and ignite the business. Well, speaking of team, I mean, this was going to be my second question, but we'll go to it now because it, there's more of a natural flow to it. And I want, do want to come back to pivoting the model because listeners are really interested in that. But just on team, I mean, you talked to me in our pre-call about how important having the right team around you is. And you used a phrase which really struck me, which was that you have the kind of team who would walk through walls. Talk to me a little bit about that. What, you know, because some of the founders I would talk to or people who I would end up mentoring, they wouldn't necessarily realise that unless you have those kind of people around you, you're not necessarily setting yourself up for success. Who are the kind of people who would walk through walls? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So if I go back to a story when I was first selling Pete and Johnny smoothies, I was a, a wholesaler in Battersea called Cranley's and I was outside and there was two energy brands coming on the market at that time. One was Red Bull and the other was Shark Energy. And the Red Bull rep met and she was so enthusiastic, so passionate, so upbeat. And within like a couple of sentences, I just wanted to buy Red Bull and I wanted to drink it. And I just thought, wow, this brand is going to go on it's going to get on the map just because of you and then met the shark rep and it was all like sort of downbeat and kind of like looking at the feet and just like you know the weight of the world was on their shoulders and just you didn't feel any energy or passion and i just thought i don't really want that product so it it kind of resonated in my mind straight away that i could see that there's a there's a natural kind of gravitas that people have and i think it's um you can't teach this i think it's inherent in a in a character that you'll get people who are just enthusiastic they're passionate and they it comes from a belief they have to believe in the brand and i think all the brands that i've been part of that have been hugely successful you've got a collective of people who just love that brand 
And it's always been a, um, a kind of a, a barometer of mine is that that love for a brand. I need to keep that and protect that right. because it's like it's the pee in your whistle. It's what drives you. And people can see, you know, it's very authentic if you love something and they're just people always get around and be like, well, I want to have that. So I think you need that. You need to try and create and hire people of a like minded ilk and that kind of bodes well because it just it, it, it's a kind of a common thread mm-hmm. through the team. Mm-hmm. There's a certain kind of just vibe that you'll get that any you know anybody will come around and think, "Wow, I've met a Dawson's person." Okay, and you can see it, and it all always comes as part of why I've always wanted to move my up in leadership roles because it does stem from the leaders, and they can they can make or break a culture, and I, I, I've seen that firsthand. So talk to us then. Okay, so we're going back a little bit in time. So you joined the business, you had all this experience and the products, uh, at, at that point, how many products were there? There were three products in glass bottles. And it was basically real ingredients, low sugar, carbonated, natural drink at the time, was it? Yeah, so it was all kind of ingredients bought from local markets, mm-hmm. brought into what we call our, our kind of brew lab. So you essentially were brewing those giant muslins and huge kind of uh, vats of kind of ginger kind of brewing away for nice. 48 hours which then infused the water and then you'd filter it you'd carb you know bottle it carbonate it and then be delivered by um it was bike originally and then we had a, a, a an italian crazy driver who looked like johnny depp um uh driving around london delivering directly to coffee shops and, and restaurants and bars so we didn't have a single wholesaler on board so they must have been great products for you to believe that it was the right jump for you into that business but what wasn't working and what were you and the co-founder your original founder able to do to pivot the business so that it would work going forward what did you have to change yeah so i think the first thing i had to do is come in and assess the business what i loved was that um the, the, this story it's been built up from a, a nightclub in dorston you know it's it's got this young founder at the heart of it who's passionate, who's an ex kind of chef and delivering, yeah, phenomenally uh, great tasting products that were natural and low in sugar, as you said. Um, so I loved all of this story. Um, but then there's a sort of uh, something sets in about the commercial reality <laughs> of, of uh, um, yeah, every, every sector has its um, commercial parameters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the model that was being followed was the craft beer model. Um, and what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is craft, the craft breweries, let's take Camden Hells or Beavertown. Um, they saw an opportunity to have a more premium, great tasting lager. Cause they said what was on the market wasn't good enough. Right. Okay. Um, so it was a premiumization, but also a modern twist. So it's very much youthful kind of anti-corporate branding. So it appealed to a younger audience and it hooked in people who would be buying, say, Carlin or Foster's. They'd buy a craft beer and that's it. They were convert. So they turned 180 degrees and they'd buy into this craft movement. Um, and the belief was that the same consumer that would buy a craft beer would also buy a craft soda. Okay. okay? So you were, that was your target? That was your consumer target was people who, who drink craft beer? Exactly that, yeah. Okay. And that, and I bought into that, and I think that's a, a that that is definitely a movement. But when you look at the commercial realities, it's let's say a craft beer in a can could sell for five quid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, craft soda, you might sell 
maximum two two fifty. Okay. The other factor is the, the the volume. People might go out and drink three, four, five pints in a night. You're not going to draw. You're not going to drink that sort of volume of a cola or a lemonade. No. Okay. Um, uh, and then you've got also the um, the actual kind of operational challenges, which is um, craft beer. You've got three main ingredients. Yeah. No pasteurization with um, soda. At the moment, we are processing some something like twenty eight different ingredients. Yeah. So the, the the capex required is so much higher. Right. Um, and also, you need to pasteurize, and the pasteurization kit is extremely expensive. Okay. So there's lots of um, stark differences. Same consumer, but the commercial reality is very different. So we had to think about this and say, okay, what are we going to do to make this business um, start to grow and scale profitably? Right. So what did you decide to do? Uh, so the decision was to say, look, this isn't going to make sense for us to have our own factory. We can't invest huge amounts of CapEx. We need to invest behind sales and marketing and operations and finance. And we don't need to be worried about all the production issues, which is kind of like the tail wagging the dog. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So we, we chose to outsource our, our manufacturing. The other thing we decided to do is what I um, talked about before was the glass bottles and that wasn't the right area because it's too congested. The, the white space was in cans. So we decided to delist all the glass and go into the can format. Was that a big emotional moment for Duncan? I mean, you know, not, not that you want to speak on his behalf, but I mean, I can just imagine if I was a founder and, and I had come up with the perfect product and it was in a bottle, I'd, I'd kind of probably be quite attached to that idea. Going into cans would feel almost like I was diluting my proposition or going in a different direction. Yeah, totally. And I think that he, he, he felt like, you know, we've built this factory We've got everything going. We've had the branding. We've had glass bottles. It's all like ready to, Dan, you come in and it's plug and play and scale. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't plug and play. Right. And it took time for me to build that kind of, to understand and then kind of get the buy-in and then implement. But even when we did implement, the first iteration of cans was a halfway house. We tried to do it in-house. Um, we failed miserably. We then did outsource, but we we didn't get it spot on and it was kind of like, okay, let's test and learn and still run this business as a bit of an insurance policy uh, to say, well, if the cans don't work. We still got the bottle. So uh, we, had a, clever. we had a period, which I think in hindsight, actually we should have, you know, you should make these hard decisions earlier, mm-hmm. but actually when you're in it and it's people and there's money involved, you had um, to do what you had to you do. You can't just shut down a factory overnight. Right? Sure. There's, um, there were some very hard decisions that had to be made. It wasn't easy. Um, but what we found is when even even though the cans weren't spot on, they still outsold the glass bottles three to one. And so why is that? What why is that? Um, well, it comes down to if you go into a red ocean or a, a blue ocean. A red ocean is where you know huge amounts of competition, and it's just not true innovation. Um, the buy, buyers are just saying, "Well, I've got it covered." So you're going into the hardest part of so fizzy drinks is probably the toughest market in FMCG. Yeah. If not, like I, I think it's up there in the top three. Um, massive brands, massive marketing, and they're very established. Okay, yeah. probably one of the last areas you've had innovation happening in food and drink yeah. because it's locked up by the big three. So when you're looking at glass bottle strategy going into the on trade, you're going into a very small area behind the bar and dominated by a couple of brands. So you, it, it, it's. There's, I, I positioned it as this funnel of 100 brands shooting for four spots. Right. 
yeah so if you take chewing gum for example um that it's the hot zone it's the hardest place to get into that chewing gum stand where wrigley's dominate it cadbury we tried it with tree bore and failed it the smaller the space the harder it is to get into okay um and that's the that's the fact of glass bottles so immediately we went into cans we're opening up a different channel which is this food service lunchtime channel where um san pellegrino had played and done a phenomenal job i mean right. no one talks about san pellegrino they've probably done as good as red bull or monster or innocent in the last decade okay and interesting there was room for more you know they're an italian citrus brand very high in sugar there's room for a, a kind of a british craft version brand that that was the space that we saw and we went after Okay, I don't don't think I'd appreciated when we were talking earlier when you said it was the craft beer model that you were following that actually it was the on trade that you were targeting at that point. I kind of imagined it was glass bottles in grocery and in convenience as well, but it wasn't. It was it was you were targeting on trade. Okay, so that's a big difference. Why not then? Was there a square on your market map that said what about glass bottles? keep the glass bottles, but just go into convenience and retail with glass. Was there a keep the product, change the channel option? Yeah, there was. And we and we did do that two-tier approach to start with. Okay. Um, but we just found that the curve for the glass bottles still continued to flatline. Okay. And the curve for cans just was just, you know, you, you see it on a graph and you can just see it's Absolutely. exponential. And you've got to back your winners. I think as a small startup, you're, you know, you're bootstrapping it. You haven't got a lot of cash. You do have to make shrewd decisions. And a lot of this is down to your working capital. And if you've got huge amounts of cash tied up in your stock, um, it, it can be a real kind of like kind of weight around your, your legs. No, the reason I'm kind of laboring this, this point is I think it's something that founders struggle with quite a bit out there. People who are, you know, on a growth trajectory, but way behind where you guys have got to. And, and it's just making the point that you can have a fabulous product and it could work in a small way in a particular channel, in a particular format. But if you think about, OK, rather than getting people when they're out for a beer, I want to get the same kind of people when they're on their lunch break and they're picking up a sandwich. What would my product need to look like? Well, it, and where would it need to be sold? Well, it need to be in a can and it would need to be the same place where normally they would grimace at having to pick up a Coke or a 7-Up, but that's all there was, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you are bastardizing your original idea or, you know, if you can try not to be too um, stuck, if you can try not to be too black and white about your original idea and just ask yourself the question, what packaging format does my product need to be delivered in to get the most of my target market most often in a particular channel and then go for that rather than the niche, you know, which is where potentially you were. And I do think it's worth kind of highlighting that point because that's the pivot you made, right? Yeah, and this is the pivot. And it took us a bit more time than what I thought to get there. But as I say, in April 2018 is when we made this move. Right. And it was a bold move because we had to shut down the factory, we had to lay people off. And this was our kind of last chance saloon. You know, we've had a couple of years and it wasn't really taken off and we said right you know we need is this make or break Let, let's go for it and we labored over every little detail we said right if you know if we're going to make it um, any chance we need everything on point and a huge amount was put into the taste um into the flavor strategy and then the branding and believe it or not you know we had this incredible logo that's what i loved about the dawson's rebrand because when you go back to the original glass bottle, it looked like some sort of um, Flintstones kind of design. 
very much homemade DIY. Um, it was kind of cool for that time. I think a sure. lot of people in London picked it up because it was it had that edgy kind of like it was made by a bloke down the road kind of vibe. But that wasn't good enough to have as a national brand. And mm-hmm. I always looked at us as being a sort of edgy and cool enough to be sold in London, but also don't alienate the, the families in Waitrose. So you'd want to try and strike that balance, which something like a brand like Oatly has done extremely well. Yeah. Um, so, so the branding was absolutely crucial. And your branding, just for, you know, would urge anyone who hasn't seen Dawson Soda, just Google it online, Google images and have a look at what the cans look like. I mean, they really, as a brand, as a range, it works incredibly well. There's been a lot of thought put into, I can see uh, how the range works as a family on shelf. You know, there's different, really strong colours, really strong block colours, but it works really, really well as a family. Uh, and and the flavours are fabulous because they're punchy, but yet they're not too high in sugar. Isn't that right? I mean, I love your fiery ginger. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we want is simplicity. And lots of people want us to put all these different consumer hooks on the front of packs. And what we decided to do is grab people's attention by cutting everything back. We think it's so noisy and so busy and so many products and everyone's just bombarded and we thought actually let's try and make this a pleasant experience so when you see it you just get it so we yeah. we enlarged the d there was a big debate whether to put dawson's in the d or not um these little things we we put it in the d it looks really clean the d itself is the hands which then show the process because mm-hmm. it's all very much the same values we've got is about us you know duncan is all over the recipes all over the ingredients and working directly with the farmers and suppliers and um it's you know he's that's where it's great where he doesn't come from this kind of polished fmcg world because yeah. he he's coming from the chefing world it's real food it's real yeah yeah and he will create flavors which are fantastic and people were bowled over they go wow i actually taste of what it says on the tin mm. and that's um incredibly important and the other thing we did with the naming we just straight batted it we call it a fizzy rhubarb a cherry aid you know we don't try and get all this kind of elongated fancy names people know what it is and then they're baff- baffled and bold over and say well what's your unique selling point we say well we put real ingredients in the can and they say they, sh- they kind of scratch their head and go what do you mean we say well you know the vast majority of all the cans we're drinking is, is there's nothing real it's, sure yeah <laughs> um yeah and so um that that's kind of fascinating how we kind of i, I think we've got the right packaging the right branding the right taste If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. So what's next then? What's next? I mean, you've got you've got all of the basics sorted, right? And you've got, you know, a lot of people who have bought into the brand and follow the brand in terms of their shopping behaviour and online What's going to drive the next big piece of growth? You talk about the acceleration phase of a business. You talked about it to me on the prequel. So what are the levers that you're going to be focusing on during the acceleration phase? Yeah, so we've gone through this, what I say, experimentation, um, which we talked about all of that. Um, And then we're about to go into this consolidation. So the last couple of years, we've launched quite a bit of uh, innovation. Some has worked, some hasn't. And what we have found in the last couple of years is that sugar has been uh, kind of put out as public enemy number one, uh, rightly or wrongly so, um, but particularly in soft drinks, the Jamie Oliver effect, the government tax, um, everybody is kind of talking about sugar as the spawn of Satan. <laughs> you go into other categories, people accept it because it's more of a luxury in these days. 
But in, in, in soft drinks, I think there's a the lion's share of fizzy drinks now, no added sugar because of the sugar tax. So that's changed the whole dynamics now. And I think a prerequisite for a future-looking modern brand has to be low or no sugar. Sure. Um, so for us, we launched our, our no added sugar. It took us a long time to come out with the innovation. We didn't want to use artificial sweetener. Um, we, we, we tried stuff. some different um, stevia stuff. You know, we, 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 we tried chicory root fiber mm. um, and none of it really worked. And then we came across this whole kind of botanicals. Where there's lots of innovation. We're distilling plants and you get lots of sweetness from plants. So if okay. you taste seed lip, it's a lovely product very very sweet and there's not any sugar in there so all the all the sweetness is coming from botanicals yeah um so we've come across that with high quality real fruit from local kind of british farms um wherever we can that has been a winning combination so last year we call them our real fruit seltzers um they're coming into this new healthier soda category and you'll see lots of brands going in there um lots of people are going in that zero calorie uh, angle we believe that most consumers will buy because of taste and that's what they want. They want a, 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 a great taste that's refreshing. And then secondly, they want something that's healthier. So it doesn't have all the associated artificial ingredients or yeah. sugar. So what we're going to be doing is um, looking at um, consolidating our range to um, have a no added sugar platform. And that's really quite exciting for us. We think that's across, gonna- across the whole range. Yeah, we're considering that at the moment across the whole range. Okay. And um, we just think that sugar's had its day right. uh, in, 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 in soft drinks. Okay. Th- um, that, does that not lead to a very uh, interesting decision from a kind of a visual brand family planning, <laughs> brand family planning decision? Because aren't your real fruit seltzers in the silver cans with the colour, but your original range is in all the block colours, No. Yeah, and we've debated about this. That silver, some people say, oh, it's stripped back. It doesn't shout. It doesn't pop no, up the I shelf. love your and big block colours. I love the <laughs> block colours. Yeah, yeah, I love them too. Um, and you know, then other people say the, the colours maybe denote a, a sugary beverage. But I would then talk about brands like Halo Top, which has revolutionised the whole yeah. ice cream that, um, world. You've then got brands like Proper Corn. Um, so colour doesn't have to denote like high, high sugar. And that's a kind of a, a unique kind of DNA for us is the colors and we'll, yeah. we'll st- stay true to that. So yeah, we'll look at that kind of, so we're moving from this, like craft goes lower down in the message and it's kind of part of the story, okay. but front and center is health. And we want to drive this wave of health, but with taste. Okay. And we think that that is the, the, the true scalable platform that potentially some of these zero calorie options start to hit a brick wall outside of the London bubble where people accept a level of um, calories um, and they're not in this kind of mad diet rush where everything has to be zero. Um, We think there's a lot of people out there that want this kind of awesome, flavorsome product and go, oh, and by the way, it's only 40 calories and no added sugar and vegan. So that's that's for us, we, we, we believe, a sweet spot. Um, we won all the awards last year for our rhubarb seltzer. So that product is is award winning and we can tweak it up a little bit and change that. We think that that that's going to be the future um, to capture this health wave front and centre. So what levers are you thinking of pulling in the future to drive the next phase of the business? Yeah, 
I think this gives real clarity for our brand. At the moment, having two ranges of sodas and seltzers is a bit confusing. Okay. So it takes away a barrier in the mind of the consumer. Right. They're straight away going to go, right, Dawson's, it's real fruit, it's no added sugar, no artificial sweetener, and it's only 40 calories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we become famous for. Um, so, yeah, we'll have real clarity. Um, you know, we will talk about um, seltzers as a as a category rather than soda. I think soda actually has a negative connotation to it. Okay. Um, it's synonymous with sugary products. Yeah. Um, fizzy pop. So there's a, yeah, fizzy, all that kind of stuff. I think seltzer, a lot of people don't know what it is. It just means sparkling water. So a real fruit seltzer sounds polemic and it will capture headlines. And I think you'll see a whole movement of hard seltzers with huge marketing budgets from all the big brands that, seltzer will become a thing mm-hmm. um similar to smoothies 20 years ago people didn't know what on earth a smoothie was i mean i had people asking me can i have that i'm driving they thought it was alcoholic <laughs> so um i love it when you when you pioneer new categories yeah. and i think that's where challenger brands should be and for us you know fighting in a soda world it's huge brands and let's face it i don't think the world needs another soda brand i think they do need a, a healthy real fruit seltzer brand yeah. and and so this will be part of our learnings and move us through into this next generation of growth. Um, in terms of the marketing, we um, before COVID, we we're very much about getting people to taste. Tasting is believing, and um, you know we do a lot of sampling. Um, we do a lot of events. Um, we we um, have just put on hold, but we were going to open up our our brew lab back in Dalston. So with oh, this wow. whole botanicals, we we're doing distillation rather than brewing, which means you can have a lot smaller kit okay. and there's elements of our drinks that we'll be distilling. And that will be going back into the heart of Dawson where it all began. Amazing. And it's a fantastic story. So we've got the stills that just ready to go in, but it's just all been put on hold until, sure. you know, this, this storm yeah. kind of blows over, but that would be fantastic. People can come again and see and smell and taste and, 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 and see you know, where the magic happens. It strikes me um, that it strikes me that, you know, flavor is so much at the core of your, you know, existence and your story and your your raison d'être, as they say, you know, and, and I was just thinking as you've been speaking, the reason I love your big block colors so much as well is because when I see them on shelf in my local cool cafe that we go to, you know, it's because they shout flavor for me. It's not necessarily that they shout fruit first, it's they shout flavor, but I know underneath it, it's a much healthier flavor. And then if I was to ask myself a second question, a second why, I'd say, why do I think that's a healthier flavor? Well, I know it's real fruit and and I know it's probably lower sugar, you know? And I just wonder, especially with your uh, distillation experience coming, I mean, maybe pushing that whole big flavor thing could be a real win uh, because that's for me what you offer. You just offer it in a much healthier way. Yeah, it's funny, actually, I didn't touch on this. Is that part of that pivot and that move we had our, our 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 slogan for that year was respect taste okay and it was all about that of you know when you're going to have a great taste in soft drink make sure you're having the best so it was all around that of tasting is believing and that's really where duncan comes into his own he's, he's kind of like really protects the brand around that taste and got a great palate from living in East London for the last 15 yeah. years. You know, he's, he, he's a real foodie um, coming from that chef in world. So yeah, he's, he's a f- phenomenal guy to have there creating these amazing products. And it was incredible to be recognized for that last year. 
we won the, the Grocer Best New Health Product Award. Amazing. Um, we won the Zenith Best New Health Product Award. And this is against all the big guys. Yeah. You know, so it's like winning the Oscar for us. So it was um it was phenomenal. Any any strange phone calls from big guys sniffing around yet? Uh, you always get um there's always like M and A, there's always um in, yeah. in, investors that they start to look at your brand. We're still tiny and yeah. um I mean the one thing is with building brands, there are the the odd occasion on a brand where they've just raised eighty thousand and then they've sold for fifty million. You know, I don't think this is the norm. <laughs> I think most brands take ten years to really sure. develop and grow. I mean, I just heard about Oatly. You know, if you look at how long they've been around for, they they launched when uh, the, the, the market was saying got milk. Um, what a time to launch! You know, everyone's it's saying amazing, you know drink it? more milk; it's good for you. And they're doing an alternative non dairy product. So. I think, we're actually um, interviewing. We're interviewing Oatly in about two or three weeks. We're really excited about that. Oh yeah, fantastic! Yeah. I absolutely love the brand. It's one of my favourite brands. It's so, fabulous. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think um, it's interesting. You do need to have money on, on, on along the way, and you want the right type of money. And I think um, you need the right. We've always built this off angel investors so far, and they all kind of bring something to the party, and that's sure. what you want is smart money. We haven't gone on the crowd. Um, just yeah, we've just wanted that added value. So yeah, be, be be interesting to see the the future chapters and what what happens. But I think if you create a brand that people love, that gives it longevity. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, Dan. I know you've got a hard stop at four. So thank you so much for all of that insight and for talking to us today. Really enjoyed the call. Uh, will you come back on the show in, in in over the next year and let us know? how you've been getting on, what decisions you actually made in the end with your, your packaging. And uh, yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to get an update. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back on as well. And uh, that would be great. Thank you for listening. Yeah. We'll talk to you really soon. Thanks a million. Okay. Cheers. All the best. Mm-hmm.